Let's open our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Thessalonians. You may have to move the bookmark in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians will begin in chapter 1 and we'll read verse 1 this morning. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Let's pray. Our Father, we have received both grace and peace from You. Grace that saves us from our sin. Peace with You. The holy, eternal, righteous Creator of everything. That grace and peace was delivered not by our efforts, not even by our faith or our belief. It was delivered by Your Son who hung on the cross to pay for our sin, who called us to Himself to become our righteousness. As we study Your Scripture this morning, let us learn more of how we can please You. Teach us how to live our lives unselfishly, humbly, and teach us how to carry Your Gospel to those around us. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous, we pray. Amen. Today we begin a new book in our weekly holy consideration of the Word of God. And that book is 1 Thessalonians. It's my intention, if God is willing, to move methodically through this book, making as full an accounting of its teaching as we possibly can. There's no benefit when preaching and running through the Scriptures simply to reach the end of a passage or a book. Each paragraph, each verse, indeed every word, should be savored because each of them proceeded from the heart of God for our instruction in godliness. It's the difference between gulping down a fabulous feast or tasting each element, each bite, savoring the time spent, and allowing yourself to recall that experience in the future. I've joked from time to time that we often spend a great many weeks looking at a very limited part of a single book. But all joking aside, what is the value of having read the verses, looked at the ideas, if we have not studied them, digested them, so that they have become implanted in our lives? Reading longer passages, Bible reading, is still of great use. And that's why we read lengthy passages each Lord's Day as part of our worship. But when it comes to the proclamation, to the preaching of the Word of God, we should never be hasty or cavalier in it, racing through as if we were checking off another accomplishment or reaching another milestone. In Bible studies, like the weekly sermon, We are called aside for a moment to consider in depth 
the instruction of God to His people. And we have squandered the time if we fail to find application for it in our own lives. If we fail to ask, how must I be different from the way I was before I was confronted by God through His Word? This morning, it's my hope to lay the foundation for studying this letter by looking at the particulars of Paul's prior experience with the people to whom he is writing the two epistles to the church of the Thessalonians. After investing our time each week since the establishment of this congregation, looking at Ezra, a book written to the Jews about the Jews in the Old Testament, I think it's important to understand the differences between the world of Ezra's day and the world and culture of Paul's day 400 years later and 2,000 travel miles away. Because I think for most of us, we don't realize how shocking the differences were between the nation of Israel and the, and the world of Rome. We simply look at it as all ancient history. We look back and say, oh, well, Jerusalem and the Jewish nation was in the Bible, the Roman nation was in the Bible, and so it's all pretty much the same thing, right? But the differences were stark. The differences were shocking to a Jewish man who is thrust by the Holy Spirit into this great divide. And even though Rome had conquered most of the known world, there was still a vast difference between that Greek world and the Jewish world where Paul was born, raised, educated, and called by God. We see examples in almost every epistle of the differences he recognizes between the cultures in many references to the Gentiles. A couple of examples are in Galatians 2.7 where he tells us, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been to the circumcised. He still sees a distinction there, but not one that is a distinction in Christ. Each group, the Jew, the Gentile, could be saved only by the applied blood of Jesus Christ but each one of them would come to Him in a different way. Ephesians 2, 12 and 14 tells us, You were at that time separate from Christ, He's talking to the Gentiles there, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He says, I was raised a Jew. You were raised Gentiles. We have a different background. We have different places we have come from. But Jesus Christ is the end of all efforts, whether in the law or in yourself. Because Jesus Christ is the one who brings salvation. 
And so when he says these things, he isn't simply stating a fact or pushing a pet historical interpretation. He tells his readers these things because it is important to know what the assumptions and the customs of a people are if you want to take the gospel to them. And for him, a Pharisee of the Jews, there was no more foreign mission than to go among the Greek and Roman Gentiles. The people he met at Macedonia, which is where Thessalonica is, just on top of the Greek peninsula, most had never heard of the law of God as given through Moses. Most of them had never even heard of Moses. It's almost hard for us to think Everybody's heard of Moses. Everybody's heard of God's law. Everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments. But in those days, the Macedonians had no idea what he would be talking about. It would have, been, it would have had as much meaning for them as if I ask you today, please tell me the basic tenets of Zoroaster. Many of you are looking at me like, Who? Exactly. That is the way the Gentiles of Macedonia would look at the God who has revealed Himself first through Israel. Oh, they're a different people. They're a long way away. We don't have to understand them. We have our own way of doing things. The difference, though... Because Zoroaster was really weird. The difference would be that if they were taught the law of Moses, they would look and they would say, oh, do not murder. Check that off. We we agree with that. Do not steal. Sure. Don't bear false witness. Absolutely. And they would ask themselves, what good is this law? We already do these things. We are already upright Romans. We're already upright Macedonians. They would have found nothing in the commandment to dispute. And so that is why when Paul wrote to the church at Rome, most of whom he had never met, he dealt with the very question, why should I follow Christ if the law of God is so similar to the laws of the state? The state outlaws murder. The state outlaw is stealing. Why do I need Jesus if the laws I already follow are exactly the same? And that is why he told them at the very beginning of the book of Romans, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. From that point of view, view, the Gentiles were condemned by their own consciences before God because they did not do what is pleasing to Him. He continues by telling them in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. The law could not save a single Jew. The law would never save a single Gentile. And the ignorance of the law 
would not be an excuse. In his presentation of the gospel, he couldn't count on a solid moral or ethical commonality with these Gentiles. They had simply never heard the law of Moses. And just to just pull out a couple of the laws that they agreed with, why would they worry about coveting? Who in the Greek world really cared about marital purity? And those first four commandments, worshiping the Lord properly, really? Paul could not count on a commonality, moral or ethical, with these Gentiles. Only one imperfectly translated through their fallen hearts. So as in the case with the book of Romans, he led them to Jesus by the conviction of their own consciences. And so this morning, I would like to delve into three key differences between this world of the Thessalonians and the world of the Jewish believers from where Paul had come. I've chosen these key features primarily because they're factually supportable. There is ample evidence historically and analysis historically because Greeks like to think about themselves a lot. but also because we will recognize many features in our American culture today. These have specific application. And as we go through the book of the Thessalonians, we will see over and over again Paul dealing with these baked-in errors that we might not even recognize in ourselves because it was simply the way we were raised. The first difference is that the Thessalonians lived in a culture of idolatry. When I say that though, you can't think about the idolatry of the Canaanites or the idolatry that the Israelites practiced in the Old Testament. This would not be considered a devout idolatry like the worship of the Baals in the Old Testament, the Thessalonians did not, for the most part, worship their gods out of fear. They did not even consider their gods worthy to tell them what to do. If you think about the Greek and the Roman gods that you may have studied in school, none of them were worthy. They were simply powerful, capricious beings. And so the idolatry practiced in Thessalonica was much more opportunistic. They would say things like, I will worship any God as long as he or she does good things for me. That's the reason I go to them. I seek their power, but I seek their power for my use, for my benefit. And they even went so far as to create gods making new ones, adding to the pantheon that they worshipped already, deifying even men and creating idols so that they could have claim to their power or to their aid or they could seek that power and aid. Thessalonica was a center, perhaps the greatest center, for the worship of the Roman emperor. 
And much of that was helped along by their history where they declared two former kings gods. You may have heard of them. The first was Philip of Macedon. His more famous son was Alexander the Great. They were Macedonian kings who in their lives were declared to be living gods and worshipped as such. When they bowed down to these gods, however, that they had made through their own craft, they did not do so as needy seekers of divine help or wisdom, but as literal God-makers, formally coercing or cajoling favors from these gods in exchange for their devotion. I'll worship you if you will help me. And because of the selfishness of their worship, they saw every new God as an opportunity for gain. This was something Paul and his companions had to overcome in their assumptions about God Himself. Because our Lord does not exist to cater to our desires or to our cravings. The one true God is the creator of everything and will not be represented by idols nor commanded by men. They had to understand, had to have it revealed to them by the Holy Spirit that it is God who is sovereign and not us. You can carve an image, but you can't make a true God. The true God made you. Thus Paul and Silas and Timothy gave thanks to God in the very first chapter or the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. He says, when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it as the word, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. He says, you didn't look at us. God didn't allow you to look at us and say, that's merely the word of men. This is merely a a new philosophy, a new God that's being taught. And we're going to add that God in with ours. He says, you saw this as the truth of the creator of the universe who has given you opportunity to come before him through Jesus Christ. It is worth noting that immediately after Paul left Thessalonica, he ended up in Athens where he preached the great Mars Hill sermon with exactly that theme. The atheistic idolatry of the Thessalonians Thessalonians had to be rooted out of their hearts, leading them to God and His work and His purposes. But sadly, this lesson has in our time become diluted and foreign to our nation. Because there are many who seek God on Sundays, particularly in our nation, who do so only for what they can get out of Him or out of God's people. 
entire churches are preaching that God is the way to wealth or to health or to prosperity or to the ease of pain. Their message preached today to many who greatly resemble the Thessalonians is that God is someone who wants to serve you. And that is exactly wrong. That is the idolatry of these Romans. That is the idolatry of this Macedonians. I will worship you if you will do good things for me. The idolatrous Thessalonians would have liked the message that many churches preach today, but they would have been ultimately lost forever if they had followed it. So for the atheistic idolaters around us today, the message of the gospel is found in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. Turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The second difference between the pagan Thessalonians and the Jewish Christians is that the Thessalonians had a different moral code. We talked a little bit about that earlier. And I understand that. I just pointed out that they would understand instinctively pieces of the law of God. I'm not negating that at all. The problem, though, with the Thessalonians is that they made new virtues that they expected everyone else to follow. One scriptural example, we saw this morning in Acts 16 in Philippi where Paul and Silas were arrested because they were violating their customs. Another example is in the very next chapter, Acts 17 verses 6 and 7 in Thessalonica. These men who had upset the world, this is the accusation against Paul and Silas and Timothy. These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They made this charge after Paul had taught at least three weeks in the Jewish synagogue. And the problem with that accusation is that there is no evidence at all they believed it was a legitimate charge. Had they believed that real treason was being committed here, that they were really proclaiming an alternative king to Caesar, the city administrators would have done much more than simply lock them up. They would have done much more than what we find in Acts 17.9 where it says after they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. If they really believed that these men were trying to institute a rebellion, they would never have let them go. What the missionaries had fallen afoul of then was not Caesar's law, but the fact that they might jeopardize the goodwill of the emperor, whom they had begun to worship as a God in exchange for His favors. It's always dangerous when a godless society begins to make their own rules and their own virtues 
to establish their own moral code. Whether it's the woke movement, the pandemic opportunists, or the constant propagation of the illusory American dream. Each of these examples represents the definition of a new civic virtue that has been elevated to sit on par with God's law. These kinds of groupthink virtues are arguably more dangerous and insidious than the failure of the people in the book of Judges. Because in that book it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That moral hodgepodge had the one small advantage that it made no demands on anyone else to comply. But these new civic virtues pit a group against an individual, forcing compliance through shame, through intimidation, or through bullying. When a godless society begins to build its own moral code, divorced from the will of God, you get nonsense like, what gender do you identify with? You get absolute nonsense like, what are your pronouns? You are systemically prejudiced simply because you had some advantages at birth. It is somehow unloving to refuse a vaccine. Or it is unchristian to take a vaccine. Both are bad theology. These false civic virtues may ask, how can you be a Christian and be a Democrat? Or they might also ask, how can you call yourself a Christian and vote for that Republican? Or perhaps the suggestion that a good patriot is also a good consumer, buying those things that are offered simply because they are in fashion, or they are popular, or because they stimulate the economy. When frugality and thrift are looked down upon when saving so that you're able to help others in their time of need is considered un-American. We're supposed to spend our credit cards to the limit. We're supposed to get more credit so that we can buy more things. That's what keeps our culture going. And it's a lie. It is a civic virtue that has been built by a godless society. And we have to be careful because some of these things we've never in our lives questioned. We have to, though, as believers, be aware of dancing to the tune of the piper that is piping the loudest at that moment. We're not called to simply signal our virtue by what we believe that matches the world's beliefs. Our guidance comes from God Himself through His Word. And that must be the sole basis for us to make moral choices. Paul deals with this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, and 6. 
He says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. We're not going to join the crowd simply because there's a crowd. We will stand. We will stand in the midst of our brothers and sisters. We will stand alone if necessary, but we stand on the Word of God alone. That is where we find truth. That is where we find goodness. That is where we find righteousness. It is through the Word of God alone. We are not here to please men. We are here to please God. The final difference between the Thessalonians and the Jewish Christians is that the Thessalonians practice what would be called patron-client relationships in many ways. Now this is a bit foreign to us, but it was quite familiar among the Greeks all the way back to antiquity. The idea was that the lower class person would be favored by a person of a higher class who would care for that person as part of their civic virtue. It was part of their doing good. And this can be seen even in the idolatry we talked about earlier. That's why these idols were considered gods, because they would be obligated to care for those mortals who were devoted to them. There was an obligation there. And so that's why they didn't just create idols or talismans. They were creating gods because the gods were higher and they would have to take care of us devoted clients. And it's one of the main reasons that imperial worship was practiced so ardently because they considered that if they were devoted to the emperor, the emperor would owe them. We recognize that, don't we? We see people ask, I follow God, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church. Why are these bad things happening to me? With the undertone, He owes me. And we see an example of this patron-client in that Jason was allowed to vouch for Paul and for Silas and for Timothy. It was Jason who paid the fine for them and pledged their obedience. We also see that they left immediately afterward. But where this becomes a real issue in the Thessalonian church is when people who come to Jesus begin to expect that the church is going to take care of them completely. That they had become a client of the church because they gave it their devotion. And I will say that this, I think, was possibly the greatest surprise to Paul as he deals with it in his epistles. It was so foreign to the way he was taught, the way he was brought up, and the way he believed. He deals with it only 
with the Thessalonian church. No other church does he have to make these kind of statements to. He tells them gently at first. In 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he says, You recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not, be a, not to be a burden to any of you. Then to drive the point home a little bit more strongly, in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 11 and 12, he makes a more direct appeal. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So apparently, even in his conversation, even in his sermons, even in his teaching in Thessalonica when he was there, he was telling them, do not be idle. You must work. But then his appeal was not heeded. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7-12, through 12, he says this, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. This was a constant struggle because of the culture of Thessalonica. They felt like they had it owed to them to be taken care of. We should never think that. We work. Now there are some who cannot work. It is our responsibility to take care of those. But to those who are able, we should expect that they should be working for their bread. But lest we think that that's Paul's final word, he quickly commends those who had been caring even during this period for those undisciplined brothers. In 2 Thessalonians 3.13, he says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. He's not telling them to stand up and say you're wrong. He's telling them to continue to seek to do good. But he's calling on those who have lived an undisciplined life, who have become the busy bodies of this church, the ones who were simply living off other people's bread and other people's toil and other people's labor to repent. Because that is not becoming of a person of God. And so in conclusion, there are many similarities of our time and place that are addressed 
in these epistles to the Thessalonians. And it is our job to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone in our culture, to the ones who appear to be following God's commands, and to the ones who are flaunting God's commands for their own benefit. Our Lord came to seek and save the lost, and that is the commission He left us as well. Go and make disciples to teach them all He has commanded us. For some, we will be called to preach to cultures we're familiar with. To those who God blesses with an extra measure of grace, they will be called to cultures that are foreign to them. And it is the same gospel in both cases that we carry to both places among both peoples because it is Jesus Christ alone who saves to the Jew, to the Greek, to the American. For many of us, though, this will also mean learning where we have been raised blind, where we are tone deaf to the sins of our culture, where we have bought simply because we were told so many times the lies that the godless world would tell us. We don't realize our cultural assumptions that have been trained into us. But as we find those remnants through our study of the Word of God, through our getting closer with God and through the Holy Spirit's conviction, we bring them to the Word of God and we judge whether it is good or sinful based solely on His Word. I look forward to the coming weeks as we see Paul's message to the Thessalonians because I think it speaks loudly to us today. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You. In Your wisdom, You have given us infinitely applicable teachings. You have told us what pleases You. And we can bring those assumptions, we can bring those cultural artifacts and hold them against the standard that You have given us in the Word of God. And in most cases, we will find that they are lacking. They lack in grace. They lack in simple obedience to Your law. They lack because they are not born of love. They lack because they're selfish. They lack because they would seek our own gain. And so God, when we are made new creatures, when we are made Your ambassadors to this culture, we realize that in many cases we must be remade. That we must question the things we have always taken for granted. 
But God, I pray that we would go boldly into that painful work, tearing out deeply embedded beliefs that do not proceed from your word. All for the sake of Jesus Christ and His gospel that we proclaim because of His example and command. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.